Welcome to the Southern Voice Rock Show. Here's your host, Jim Harris. Welcome to the Southern Voice Rock Show. We are so excited to bring you today's episode. We've got a couple of guests we think you're really going to enjoy. With us is Jim Peterick. Jim was a founding member of the Ides of March. They had a massive hit in 1970 with the song Vehicle. That band's still together today, by the way. Jim went on to form Survivor, another band with a lot of hits, including the seven-time digitally platinum Eye of the Tiger from the Rocky Three soundtrack. In addition, Jim is quite the accomplished songwriter. He's written hits for a lot of different artists, including Heavy Metal with Sammy Hagar and several with 38 Special. Also with us today is Derek St. Holmes. Derek's resume includes the Ted Nugent Band, Whitford St. Holmes, St. Paradise, Vanilla Fudge, Michael Schenker, and so many more. So let's get to it. Let's just jump right into your incredible rock and roll career. Jim Peterick, welcome to the Southern Voice Rock Show. Hey, Jim Harris. You first came on most folks' radar screen in 1970 with, I guess, your first big band, The Ides of March, and you guys had a song, Vehicle, that at one time, it may still be, was Warner Brothers' fastest-selling single. Am I correct on that? You are correct. It was the fastest-selling single, the fastest-rising single to number one in their history up to that point. And what a great song, and it's interesting because... You still hear it today in placements in commercials and in films, and the song just, it has staying power. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And so does the relationship that inspired the song. I was dating a girl named Karen. I was 17. She was 15. She broke it off, and in order to win her back, I wrote this song, I'm Your Vehicle, Baby. Because she was asking me for rides, but not dates. Anyway, long story short, it went to number one. Guess who starts calling me again? And after now 51 years of marriage, I am still her vehicle. So that song accomplished its desired objective. <laughs> yeah, it sure it sure did. And now we're grandparents and uh, all good. And those of us that are just music fans got to enjoy the fruits of your pursuit, you might say. <laughs> After the Ides of March initially went their separate ways, you formed another band that, by all definition, I think did pretty well. Yeah, it really was a huge success. I had just put out my solo album in uh, 76 called Jim Peter Don't Fight the Feeling, and I was on tour with Boston. But the album didn't really do so well. And I decided I'm going to put together the Ultimate Rock Band. And I started calling people that I knew, Dave Bickler, who I used to sing jingles with, like Schlitz Malt Liquor, just to make money. I knew he was a great singer. Called Frankie Sullivan, who was a great guitar player with a group called Mariah, which I wrote songs for. And then uh, a, a rhythm section from the group Chase. And we put together a band called the Jim Peterick Band. But at a point, it became Survivor because it was no longer just me singing, Dave Bickler and I were sharing vocals. So that was the start of Survivor. You guys released a, uh, a couple of really good albums, and then you had a stroke of excellent fortune come your way with an opportunity to be on the soundtrack of a film that did very, very well 
Rocky Three. Yeah, I, I remember it like it was yesterday because it was so pivotal in my whole career and in the career of Survivor. Get home one day and on the answer machine, hey, yo, Jim, give me a call at Sylvester Stallone. I thought someone was putting me on. And my wife says, you better call him back. It, just, it might not be a joke. And I called him back and he says, hey, Jimbo, call me Sly. You know, and he says, uh, I got this new movie called Rocky Three. And I don't want to use that going to fly now song. It's, it's a nice song, but I want something for the kids, something with a pulse. Can you help me out? I said, absolutely. And he sent us the rough cut of the movie. And Frankie uh, Sullivan and I got together to watch that movie. And I had my guitar around my neck. And I see Mr. T rising up and Stallone kind of getting soft doing Master Charge commercials. I had my guitar out and I just started going, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And then the punches that are being thrown out was just trying to coordinate the punches with the chords. I went, bop, 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 you know. And it just it just flowed. And in three days, we were in the studio cutting the demo for Rocky Three. It was supposed to be a demo. It's actually the version they used in the movie. You've always been a very prolific songwriter. Was that how Stallone got connected to you for the soundtrack? <laughs> Sure is. He was a big fan of vehicle. And if you listen to Gonna Fly Now, there's some very uh, specific touchstones from vehicle in Gonna Fly Now. No offense to it, but he told me later I was really influenced in that song. In fact, he used it in his movie Lock Up. As the inmates were restoring a Mustang, they played our master of vehicle. And that was not your last time in a movie soundtrack, but... We'll kind of circle back around to that. Eye of the Tiger blows up in just a massive, massive way. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that that song spent how many weeks at number one? Seven weeks on Billboard. And it's two times platinum in its physical context. And I think it's maybe seven times platinum in digital. Yeah, it just went one billion streams it, it's way up there with all the big ones so we're really honored survivor had uh, a lot of hits after that that just kind of maybe put you guys in the the forefront of the public eye but you followed that up with several albums and then at one point in time you added a lead singer that had a pretty solid background in southern rock as well from cobra and target jimmy jameson yeah dave had to take time off to nurture his voice back and we just didn't have a year we parted company and started auditioning people and one guy came in from memphis and <laughs> blew us away his name was jimmy jameson he changed our whole sound in a way because as a songwriter i write to voices i write four voices and he had that beautiful sound i mean he was tough but he had this range that just went up and wouldn't quit. And that's brought some great writing out in me and me and Frankie. And the first song that we auditioned him with uh, was called Broken Promises. And that turned out, of course, on that album that we premiered him with. And we go, holy, holy moly. But from there, we wrote the searches over specifically for Jimmy Jameson's voice. And what a great combination of the band and him and his frontman talents. But I, I kind of skipped something that would start 
explaining your association to also not just classic rock, but to Southern rock. In the late 1970s, you, and I think along with a couple of guys in Survivor, wrote a song, Rocking Into the Night, and you ended up passing that song along to a band that would become a pretty big Southern rock band, 38 Special. Yeah, Yeah, that was our introduction to 38 Special. The funny thing about that is we didn't even know our A&R man, John Kaladner, passed it along to uh, 38 Special's manager until we heard it on the radio, which was a shock. At the time, it was like, that was supposed to be our song. But I know Ron Nevison, our producer, wanted to leave it off the album for some reason. So it gave opportunity for 38 Special to launch a major career. Not that it was their first album, but it was their first big album. And at that point, John Kalander put us together in person. And Jeff Carlisi and Don Barnes flew into Chicago. And we sat around my kitchen table. And we just started going at it. And the very first song we wrote together was Hold On Loosely. And that was sort of the beginning of a great and very productive partnership between you and 38 Special, some that you wrote, some that you co-wrote. But several of their biggest hits came from your pen. Yeah, I'm really proud of that. And in concert, they perform all those songs, including some of the more obscure cuts, like Chain Lightning, which they do a big production thing on, which is pretty incredible. That's been like my, almost like there's the Ides of March of Survivor. There's 38 Special. I feel like I'm a part of their band in a kind of a tangential way. Most of the albums that those early songs were on were recorded in Atlanta, or just outside of Atlanta, in the infamous Studio One in Dorval. Yeah, you know, Rodney Mills, what a great producer. He really brought the best out of him in that studio. The magical echo chambers are still legendary. Another connection with Southern Rock is you co-wrote two albums with Henry Paul after Henry left the Outlaws. Right. Well, you know, even before we left, the Outlaws recorded a song of mine called Rebel Girl, which was really cool. But then we really took off when Blackhawk was formed and Henry and I started writing along with Dave. We made a great trio of songwriters together for Blackhawk. And we wrote, I think, some really good Southern rock. I think what I do, what I try to bring to the party, what I did with 38 Special, is blend some of my pop sensibilities with the Southern rock sound and sensibilities. And it forms a kind of a amalgamation that really seems to work. Well, in that same time period, you weren't only working with Southern artists. You co-wrote Heavy Metal with Sammy Hagar. Wow, I'm glad you brought that up. That was a major career milestone for me because I was already a huge Hagar fan. We got together again. John Kalander played Cupid, put us together, and I, I flew down to San Francisco, and he picked me up in his red, uh, brand-new Ferrari Daytona. Pretty impressive. And, you know, we were driving to his house, and everybody's waving to him. He, he was a local hero. I mean, he was more than a local hero. But definitely the local hero and went down to his uh, studio in his basement. And uh, he says, well, you know, my manager, Eddie Leffler said, there's this movie coming out called heavy metal. Why don't we focus on that? 
And three hours later in a Tascam uh, 8-track cassette player, we, we had our song. Another great soundtrack moment for you. Absolutely. I've always been inspired by movies, and um, this is no exception. We're going to get into what you have going on now here in just a minute, but you have a pretty full plate, I think, don't you? Yeah, it's really something. I really do, and, and part of that is the bands that I produce and are, are a part of that do really well in Europe and worldwide, and one of them is called Pride of Lions. I'm honored to have a, a great co-singer named Toby Hitchcock, and we're just releasing our seventh studio album, uh, Well Kept Secret. We've always sold well in Japan and Europe, but this one, there's a big push from our label Frontiers that is uh, located in Italy to really give this one a boost. And that, This comes out on June 15th. It's called Dream Higher by Pride of Lions. There's a video out now for it right now. It's uh, the video for a, a song called uh, Blind to Reason. It's really cute. It reminds me of an old MTV video. You know, boy, girl, me and Toby singing, but nothing heavy. You know, it's fun. We'll have all of the uh, links to all of your various projects in the show notes so our fans will be able to do a little deeper dive. But around 1990, you and the Ides of March reconnected. Yes, we did. We were asked by our hometown of Berlin, Illinois, if you guys reunite, we're going to hold the biggest concert Berlin has ever seen. And we did. We played for the first time together for like 17 years because I was did Survivor for 17 years. We drew 20,000 people to the back of the Cermak Plaza in Berlin, Illinois. It was supposed to be a one-off concert, but hell, we had so much fun, we just kept going. And to this day, you know, this year we're doing 25 shows, uh, some of them on our own, some with a franchise we called Cornerstones of Rock. Jim, we have one question that we always ask every guest, and that is this. Was there ever a time in your career that you were standing on a stage either about to play, playing, or had just played, and you looked out and you thought, man, this is it? Yeah, like every night. <laughs> but I remember opening for Led Zeppelin in, in Winnipeg. And, of course, there was 25,000 people out there. I'm standing out there with my Les Paul and the Ides of March. And it was a surreal moment because I knew the next band going on were my heroes, Led Zeppelin. And we did our best, and we killed that night. And so much so that Robert Plant complimented us afterwards and invited us to their big party at the hotel, the penthouse suite in Winnipeg. And that was just an amazing, amazing uh, time in my life. We've talked about everything that you have going on now. Do you have anything that's on your radar coming up that our folks would like to hear about? Yeah, actually. Uh, I'm uh, starting to assemble the pieces for a new Frontiers release that is going to be half classic rockers and half of my new discoveries. And it's going to be called Roots and Shoots. And uh, I've already got a major collection of my friends that I reached out to, like John Barnes and, well, not, not Sammy Hager yet. <laughs> He's on my, my wish list. But 
a lot of the classic rockers, Kelly Kagi of Night Ranger, just so many of my pals are coming on and doing the classic rock side. All new material by classic rockers. And then the newbies that I'm uh, starting to discover. And it's really going to be fun. Do you have a uh, any idea when that might drop? Probably first quarter of 04. Awesome. Well, that is definitely something. And that's another one we'd like to invite you back to cover with us when it gets a little closer to being published. That sounds like something that would be right up our alley. That would be great. I would really appreciate that. So we're going to have to have you back. It looks like about once a month to keep us up with everything that's going on with you. <laughs> I'm uh, available. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your day and for everything that you've done in the world of rock and roll. I mean, you, you have just been the architect of so much incredible rock, both behind an instrument and behind you know the, the songwriting side of it. And obviously, you know, production and you, you just you've had a hand in so many things. We appreciate it. It's just an incredible body of work. I appreciate you, Jim. And thank you for the great interview. Well, it was indeed a pleasure. So Jim Peterick, everyone. <laughs> in this week's liner notes, we're going to talk about one of the biggest feuds in rock history that may not have been that big a feud after all. And that's between Ronnie Van Zandt of Leonard Skinner and Neil Young. The feud has its origins in Sweet Home Alabama as a response to Neil Young's songs, Alabama and Southern Man, which did not portray the South in a very positive light. Ronnie Van Zant later said in an interview with Rolling Stone, we thought Neil was shooting all the ducks to kill one or two. We're Southern rebels, but more than that, we know the difference between right and wrong. Neil Young later said, that he deserved the shot that Skinner took at him with the song Sweet Home Alabama. It appears that fences were mended. In the cover for the 1977 album Street Survivors, Ronnie Van Zant was wearing a Neil Young t-shirt, and Neil Young wrote the song Powderfinger specifically for Leonard Skinner. Unfortunately, because of the plane crash, there was never an opportunity for that song to be recorded. Not long after the crash... At a charity benefit in Miami, Neil Young created a medley out of his song Alabama, which he seldom plays, with Sweet Home Alabama mixed in as a tribute to Leonard Skinner. For this week's covers, we have a remake that we think you are really going to like. In 1969, Credence Clearwater Revival released the album Willie and the Poor Boys, which contained the rock classic Fortunate Son. In 2016, the supergroup Dead Daisies remade Fortunate Son for their album, Make Some Noise. It's available on iTunes, and it's definitely worth a listen. We are so fortunate to have Derek St. Holmes with us today on the Southern Voice Rock Show. Derek, welcome. Hey, James. How are you, man? I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to talk to you all. It's going to be great. Fantastic. Well, we'll just jump right in, and we'll kind of get into the part of your career that really brought you on to the national scene, and that is your time with the gonzo man, Ted Nugent. (laughs) It's my cross to bear. It seems that you and Ted have had sort of a, an Elizabeth Taylor relationship and, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, the, the film star, you know, remarried people several times. And it seems like you and Ted have a, 
a history of being together, putting some great music together, going your separate ways, and then something brings you back together, and that seems to have happened several times. Yes, that is true. I, I don't know why that happens, but but it does. Many times, Ted will get into a project, and he'll just say, well, let me call Derek and see if Derek wants to help me do this or this or this, and I'm always willing to help him. I mean, he's like, for sure, an older brother figure to me. And, you know, as brothers do, they, they argue sometimes and they don't get along all the time, but they always love each other. As he has, we've just stayed loyal to each other. We've had our differences, but he's my older brother. Gotcha. Older. Gotcha. Yeah. We'll make sure that we emphasize that in the final cut. <laughs> you were on a couple of the early albums. You went your separate ways. You came back and you did some of the tracks on Double Live Gonzo, including Stranglehold, which is iconic. Yeah. I co-wrote the melody with him. I pretty much wrote the melody. He wrote a lot of the music. And it was a collaboration. I, that song has certainly stood the test of time. I mean, had we thought it was going to be this sort of classic rock i don't know we might have done things differently who knows but i'm just glad that it is a uh, classic rock anthem before we move on in your career in a brief summary what's it like being on tour and traveling the country with ted nugent <laughs> you have to be on your toes you never know what's going to happen you never know back then there were a lot of knee-jerk reactions He'd change directions. I mean, he'd, he'd change his mind, and we would just, you know, be loyal troops and just follow him. He's always, I'm trying to think of the right word, provocative, I guess, but, you know, we'd meet other, other people in bands and other band leaders, and, you know, Ted would come on pretty, pretty aggressive, pretty strong when we would first get on a new tour, and... You know, it's just his personality. I mean, he's very high strung. He's got to at least own up to that. Alan Walden, as you know, signed yeah, Leonard Skinner out of yeah. an audition. Yes. He always talks about how when Leonard Skinner went on the stage, you know, whether it was versus the opening act or if they were the supporting act versus the headliner, they always looked at it like it was a fight and they wanted to win it. Was that kind of right. similar with Ted? Oh, that's exactly what it was with us. I mean, we and we toured with them a lot, and we toured with them for quite a long time, and it was always a football game. I mean, you know, we went out there to, to destroy them, and they went out to destroy us. So it's funny because two leaders in those bands, they would talk, and they would throw punches back and forth to each other, but the rest of us, I locked in with their drummer. I mean, for some reason, we both said, you know, all this stuff seems to be nonsense to us. Let's just play our music and have fun. And that was Artemis Pyle. He and I, we had a great time. And I always saw Artemis every day. I didn't really know the other guys very well. And I'm not sure why Artemis and I hit it off, but we did. I think we just, like I said, didn't care about the nonsense. We just wanted to play. You guys were actually with Skinner on the Street Survivors Tour and played with them in Greenville, the last concert before the crash. Yes, we were getting ready to split off from the tour and do, I think, three days apart. We split off for three days. We were going to go do a couple headline dates, which was going to help us and move us into a different slot. 
and they broke off and they we were at like a holiday inn type bar that closed at 12 or something i mean and i remember we're hanging out we're having a couple drinks and then i said well i got to go to bed because we got to get up early catch an early flight to get to macon georgia so i'm walking out and i see their pilot sitting at the bar and he's having a drink there and i kind of walked by and i turned around away shouldn't you be sleeping and he goes oh no i got it all right and artemis would always try to get me to get on the plane and oh Derek, we have so much fun you know we're playing cards and i went no nah, i'm not getting on that plane it just looked unsafe to me i just kept it to myself but i always said no nah, i'm gonna go american or delta or united or whatever it was but we get to macon we come walking in the back roll-up door of the Coliseum, and here comes Alex Cooley walking down with his assistant and just the saddest face. And, and we said, what's, what's going on? And he goes, Skinner's plane went down, and a few people didn't make it. And when he started to read off the names, we were devastated. can only yeah. imagine. I mean, for those of us that were just fans, you know, it was just... It was a tragedy beyond description. I mean, you know, being a Southern guy, you know, Skinner was part of the fabric of our DNA. Absolutely. I mean, even ours. I mean, we were Detroit boys, but we were so smitten with how how good they were. And it was a it was a fight to the finish every night to try to go up against them. I mean, they were a force to be reckoned with, and they had all that going for them. You know, it's it's. It's hard for a northern band to kind of come in there, so that's why it was always a football game. But yeah, when we found that out, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe the whole thing was a tragedy. But I mean, the, the key players—I mean, we just went, "Oh my gosh, what are they going to do?" You know what? That's the first thing we thought about. And then, of course, you get about the families and think about everybody. And mm, 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 mm. what a tragedy! Needless yeah. to say, that's uh, that's a date that is burned in the mind of all Southern Rock fans. Your next big stop after Ted was the Whitford St. Holmes project. How did that come yes. to be? We did a lot of touring together, Aerosmith and Ted Nugent. And again, like Artemis Pyle, Brad and I struck up a, a, a great friendship and we would always hang. If you watched that band... Brad Whitford is pretty much the glue. I mean, he holds everything together. And it's real quiet. You don't realize it until you really look, look deep into it. And we always say that Brad plays like Joe looks, and he just tears it up. But, so we were friends. And then he got really tired of being in, in his band. And I got tired of being in my band a little earlier than he did. So the management was David Krebs and Steve Lieber. And, and David Krebs was always kind of looking out for all the artists that weren't the main stars, and kudos to him for doing that. He kept Ted Nugent Band together longer than it would have been, but um, Brad and I hooked up in Atlanta. I was living in Atlanta at the time. I moved to Atlanta in 1975, never went back north again. I, I never thought I should have been born up north, and uh, it turns out I'm right, but but I was. but. So Brad and I get together in Atlanta. We just kind of come from the same place of writing songs. And we put together 21 songs in like 
two weeks just jamming. And so at that point, we just said, well, let's do an album. We picked the best nine or ten songs, and we cut that first with the Jane Holmes album. The next big step was St. Paradise, and you guys, own, uh, once again, that was a one-album band, correct? Yes, yes. 1979, as soon as I left Ted Nugent, we had that deal set up, and that was with Warner Brothers. And that's when I put together that band, um, St. Paradise, which was Rob Grange and Denny Carmasi, the drummer from uh, Montrose. So we put that St. Paradise album together, produced it with Mike Flicker, the producer from Heart, and put it out. And as soon as we finished it and put it out, disco hit. I came back to Atlanta, and I just kind of hung out for a little bit trying to figure out what I was going to do and got a phone call from Michael Schenker's management, again, David Krebs. And he said, why don't you fly over to England and see if you can get along with Michael, because Michael needs a singer. So I guess Michael Singer at the time was a, a gentleman by the name of Gary Barden, and a great guy, great singer. But I think they were kind of starting the same kind of silliness as Ted, Ted and I did. But um, So I flew over, packed my bag for, you know, four days, got the job, never came home. It was wild. I mean, I didn't come home for like six months. In those days, it was too expensive to fly back and forth. So I tried the Michael Schenker thing and did Built to Destroy album, then did the live at Hammersmith. And then it was just getting too hard to be there and be away from family. I just purchased a house outside of Atlanta. And I had a little girl. And I just thought, wow, this is just not, wasn't feeling good. So I handed him my notice. And when I handed him my notice, Michael's brother, Rudy, he cornered me at Hammersmith Odeon restroom and he said Derek you can't leave you're the best guitar player my brother's ever had and I said buddy I love your brother but I just I gotta go home and I think if I would would have been able to have two weeks off we probably could have salvaged it it is not an understatement to say that you have played with some serious rock and roll talent back to your St. Paradise days Denny Carmasi from Montrose also played with Sammy Hagar when he was solo and then later went on to play with our friend Mark Andes in Hart for about, what, 10 years, maybe? Yes, yes. Played yes, in White yes, Snake, yes. played in oh, yeah. uh, Coverdale Page. I mean, yeah. incredible drummer. And then, yeah. of course, Michael Schenker, that you were with in the period you described, Spent some years with UFO, which is one of the, in my opinion, one of the great underrated bands of all time, and the Scorpions. And then you mentioned his brother, Rudy. And Rudy, of course, is the Scorpions. Yes. Some pretty impressive pedigrees there. I was going to say the same thing. Some pretty um, high pedigree guitar players. And, and I was honored to even be asked to join the band. We had a good time. If you can go back to 1983... And put in on YouTube, Derek St. Holmes, Michael Schenker group, all those videos will pop up of us playing Hammersmith Odeon. And that was a pretty good 
rendition of what the band was like. I mean, it was on fire. Your next stop was another one of the 70s iconic bands, Vanilla Fudge. Yeah, I really kind of started in the studio. They had recorded a live album, and they didn't finish it because I guess there was a falling out between the drummer, Carmine Apice, and the singer. So Carmine, because he and I had played together in 1982, Nugent album, Carmine calls me up and he said, hey, you know, this is a live album. Can you come and finish the vocals that are a little bit sketchy? And I said, absolutely. So I went in, did all that. There was some talk of, you know, maybe doing more, but during finishing the live Vanilla Fudge album in the studio, it wasn't my cup of tea for a long term. Gotcha. Yeah, I was only there for that recording of that live album. And I would sing songs two feet off the microphone and make it, I sang just like, just like their singer. So that was kind of the extent of that. But and I'm real proud of it because, I mean, I had a chance to sing songs I never would have sung before, you know, keep me hanging out and all that. So it's pretty cool. We're going to wind up talking about kind of what's going on with you today. But before we get to that, I've got a question that I have been dying to ask you. And I know if our listeners have heard the story, they're going to want to hear your answer to this. Okay. In an interview a couple of years back, you mentioned that Ted Nugent had shot you twice. My question is, of the people that are sort of in Ted's inner circle, is that a low number or a high number? <laughs> Have a lot of his inner circle folks been shot more than you? Or were you just, are you the leader on the board right now? I think I'm the leader on the board. Yeah, uh, it's funny because we used to, we'd hunt together a lot when we get together and write music. And really we were just, he was hunting, I was tagging along with a shotgun and I was just target practice, but um, yeah, there was a time when something ran in between us and he, he pulled, pulled the trigger on it and all these BBs from this 12 gauge hit rocks and, and slammed into my leg. And I went, holy crap, when you get shot, it's really, things burns, it's hot and, and I said, you better believe it. But, um, so they weren't life-threatening wounds into the upper right leg, but Yes, it happened. And then an end of tour gathering and get together at Ted's farm. We're in the backyard and we are shooting uh, nine millimeter automatic Uzis. <laughs> and it's great. We're wild people. So I think my fault standing a little too close to the metal plates that he was shooting at. And I think I got a ricochet in the arm. And again, I feel this really hot sensation in my right forearm. And I'm sitting there with headphones on. So we sing our ears and we're all shooting. And, and I look down. I got blood rolling down my arm. This thing cut straight across the top of my arm. And I went, oh, my God, I've been shot twice by Ted Nugent. <laughs> so from that day forward, always stand behind him. Always be way behind. Stand behind Ted Nugent. <laughs> when he's shooting, get behind him. Yeah. So, but so to be clear, none of this ever happened in the studio or on stage. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> 
Derek, tell us about what's going on with you today. Well, let's see. I just got back last night from Dallas, Texas, from the Dallas Vintage Guitar Show. I performed. I did that. I do a lot of one-offs. I kind of tailor it to myself now. I mean, at the age of 70 and, and in this business as long as I've been doing it, number one, it has to be fun music and it has to be a fun time. It has to be a great hang. But I do a lot of that. I'll do one-offs and I do a lot of fundraisers. That's fun for me to give back. I'm big on St. Jude's. I'm big on anything for kids and I don't care about the money. It's all about bringing it back, back home for them. So I do a lot of those. I've got a couple St. Jude things coming up now. And usually I do those with Alice Cooper and some of the guys from REM. That's always fun. Sugar Ray. It's a whole eclectic bunch of people together with a core band. I do a lot of that. We have a lot of listeners in the Atlanta metro area as well, and you are going to be at the Buford Jam in, I think that's late July, correct? That's right. That's correct. And that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm hoping to get Steve Pace from Hydra to come out. Let me throw two quick questions at you, and then I'll let you out of here because I've kept you a lot longer than I intended to. In your career, was there ever a time that you were standing on the stage either before you played, while you were playing, or after you played, and you just looked out, and you had this kind of epiphany moment, and you're like, my God, I've made it. This is it. Yes. I, I can tell you three three times real quick. First one, when I was young, I had, I had a chance to go see Jimi Hendrix at the Cobo Arena, downtown Detroit. And he stood on the stage right, and... When I was sitting in front of him, he's to my left. I thought, wow, that is such a cool job. Look look how good this guy is. I mean, that's the way you, you approach this. And I thought, one day, one day I'm going to do that. I'm going to be up there. Sure enough, that day came. We sold out Cobo Hall. I happened to stand on stage the exact spot that Jimi Hendrix stood. And I looked out into that audience and saw the same view he did. And I just thought, wow, I, I made it. I, I did it. When we did Madison Square Gardens, I stood up there, and I'd seen that on television so many times. We finally sold it out. I'm standing up there in New York City, the Big Apple, and we sold the place out, and we were the coolest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> and, and we're standing on stage looking out in the audience thinking, how crazy. The third one would have to be uh, California Jam 2, like 350,000 people to stand on that stage. I think there's even film of that. I think there's like a California Jam 2 video or something. But to stand up there and you couldn't see the end of the crowd. You couldn't see the, where the people stopped. That was amazing to me. It was a sea of people and just, it was surreal. Derek, we've had the longest 15-minute interview ever in the history of time. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you having me on, James. I've, I've loved talking to you. It's, it's been great. It's uh, always a pleasure. Thank you, Derek St. Holmes. In this week's Hidden Gems, we have a band you've heard of and an album you probably haven't. Humble Pie's 1980 On to Victory. When Peter Frampton left Humble Pie, Steve Marriott tried several times to reform the band. And in 1980, he released this album. 
They had a single that started climbing the charts and a tour plan, but injuries and an illness to Marriott stopped the band dead in its tracks. Nonetheless, the album is very much worth a listen. And thank you for listening to the Southern Voice Rock Show. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening. 